Amen. The debt that we owe you, Lord, cannot begin to be measured. And Lord, I just thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You didn't come because we're perfect, but because you are. Lord, I pray as we go to your word right now that you would be our teacher, minister to every heart that is here. Nobody's here this morning by chance. You've gathered us together by divine appointment, and your word is always right on time. So may you be glorified. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Grab a seat. Turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the New Testament. I want to encourage you to come out Wednesday night. We'll be in Judges chapter 10, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. So we're going to finish up, Lord willing, this uh, letter this morning. And by way of not-so-quick review necessarily, I'm going to take a moment and talk about this letter that has been such a blessing. This morning we're going to finish looking at this letter that is written to a, ch- a church in a city of Colossae where they're under heavy attack, where people are trying to get their eyes off of the true and living God. And there's nothing new under the sun. Because Colossae is much like Santa Cruz or California today. Because what was happening was the church was there, it was about six years old, God had been blessing it, but in when God is doing a great work, there's an enemy who wants to tear it down. And so what did the enemy do? He sent in those who were teaching a false gospel, heretical things. They added to the cross of Christ. They added works and wisdom and personal suffering and additional paths and worship of creation and angels. This letter couldn't be more applicable to you and I today than if it was written last week. Because we know that some of the things that that were going on in the city, there were people that were legalistic. We have that today, we know. People who add to the cross of Christ. They say what Jesus did is not enough, and you got to do all these other things to be saved. And you know what? Their whole denomination's built around legalism. Guys, Jesus' last words on the cross were, it is finished. The price has been paid. Secondly, there was a group called the Gnostics. We've talked about this, but we're going to keep talking so we understand it. The Gnostics were the pursuers of knowledge. We have that in the world today as well. Those who think that there's some some supernatural knowledge out there that's going to really give them the real path to God. Guys, God is not hiding, amen? Amen. He's not hiding from us. It's not some mysterious knowledge. You're not going to go out into the woods and find some golden glasses and put them on and start being able to read some. That's where the whole Mormon church came from. And the truth is that all these cults and false religions pop up because, you know what, Satan's not going to show up at your door with a pitchfork in his hand and horns growing out of his head and say, come follow me to hell. We're not going for that, amen? But what he will do is he'll give us something that sounds a lot like the truth, but is far enough the way that leads to the exact same destination. And so what is happening in Colossae is all these things are coming in. It's the Gnostics with their pursuit of higher knowledge. Asceticism, as we talked about, where people wounded themselves. They wounded themselves and they made themselves suffer to somehow pay for their sin. Guys, we don't, young gals cutting themselves, we don't need to do that. That's the the enemy wanting to destroy us. He seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. We don't need to harm ourselves. People sticking needles in themselves. All these things they do to somehow prove their love for God. We don't crawl on our knees on glass to Mecca. We don't have to do that. Jesus Christ paid the price. But these things were happening in Ephesus. Or excuse me, in Colossae. Now also in Colossae were the Eastern philosophers. These guys would do real well in Santa Cruz because if you look at the religion section of the, of the Santa Cruz Sentinel, it's hard to find a Christian church. You can look through there and see a hundred listings and find three Christian churches in there. And there's every kind of labyrinth walk and sit in this position and meditation and stuff I've never even heard of. But somehow there's this understanding that the Eastern philosophy out there is really the answer that we're longing for. Some guy in a robe sitting up on a mountain somewhere, he's got the answer. And we need to go pursue it and find it from him. And all they're teaching is there are many other paths to God. That was happening in Colossae. Also in Colossae were those who were into looking at the stars. Pagan astrology. Again, there's nothing new under the sun. The worship of creation rather than the creator. And then lastly, the worship of angels and even, again, today, making of saints. 
So today we see legalism challenging the word of God, the simplicity of the gospel. People telling you you have to be baptized in their church and their baptism or you're not getting saved. People telling you that you've got to keep certain religious sacraments in addition to the cross. You've got to dress a certain way. You've got to maintain a certain diet. Every one of those things lessens the cross of Christ. There's also those of that special knowledge as I talked about. Joseph Smith supposedly had it. Charles Taze Russell started the Jehovah's Witness movement. L. Ron Hubbard, if you read, if you get deep enough into the Church of Scientology, in the end he tells you he's God. Well, their God died, so how's that working out for him, right? L. Ron Hubbard's dead and we could dig up his bones, unlike our God who's a risen and living Savior. And so often they've got these special revelations in these special books. Guys, we don't need any other books in the book you got in your hand right now. This is the book and this has got all the answers in it. We don't need any more books, any more revelations. Again, asceticism, the harsh treatment of one's own flesh when Jesus said it's finished. The Eastern Oriental philosophies, again, of finding another path. You know, it's sad because there are so many churches today saying there's another way or another path. Just this week, and, and people say, sometimes they get upset with me and say, Pastor Dave, why do you call out other denominations sometimes? Let me tell you why. When they say that Jesus is not the way, they're not a denomination, they're a cult. And I'm telling you not to bash on them, but then if you have a neighbor that belongs to that church, the Lord loves them, we need to pray for them, and we need to share the greater truth with them. Amen? And just this last, I don't know when it happened, but I got the email this week that the Episcopal Church would, would not vote, yes, that Jesus is the only way to salvation. They refuse to affirm that that is true. You know what you are when you do that? You're a cult. Because if you don't say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then, there is, then you can go any way, and all the other ways are a lie. Why do I point that out? Because you know what? That's what the enemy wants to do, is draw us away. From, the gospel is so simple. Why do we muck it up? Isn't it simple? We're sinners in need of a Savior. Jesus came, He suffered and died. He's perfect, holy God. And on the third day, He rose from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and He's coming back. If you believe that, you accept Him as your Savior, you're going to heaven. Amen? Amen. There it is. And sadly, it's being added to and added to. Pagan astrology, again, that worship of creation rather than the Creator. Guys, we're supposed to take good care of the environment because God gave it to us. But we don't worship Mother Earth. Amen? And we don't need to be hugging no trees either. Again, we should take good care of it. But we ought to be far more worried about seeing the lost saved than saving the rainforest. Amen? If you're all about saving the rainforest, God bless you. But you better be more worried about saving people, seeing people saved who are lost. We ought to be more worried about hellfire than global warming. Amen? So the point is that we're to take good care of the, of the environment, but we don't worship it. And finally, the worship of angels. And as soon as you do that, guys, we don't elevate angels. You know when we get to heaven, the angels will be lower than us? That's what the Bible says. And we don't walk around arrogant because of that. But the point is, we don't worship angels, and we don't worship dead saints. They can't hear you. Amen? I die, don't pray to me, I'm not listening. Amen? I'm too focused on the Lord, I'm not listening to you guys. All right? The point here is that when we do that, all we're doing is putting layers between us and the Lord. He, Jesus Christ is the path. He is the way. Why am I talking about all this stuff? Because this is what was happening in Colossae, and this is what is happening in the world today. And what did he write in the letter to Colossae? It's all about Jesus. Two chapters, preeminence of Christ. It's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. I know that I sound like a broken record here talking about this stuff, but you know what? We need to hear it again and again and again. How do we refute it? We keep pointing them to Christ. We keep pointing them to the cross. Paul's letter is one of the most Christ-centered books in the entire Bible. 
I won't give you all of them, but let me just give you a few things he says about Christ in the first two chapters. He says that he alone is God. He is divinely unique. He is the source of our redemption and forgiveness. He delivered us from the power of darkness. He is the creator and the one for whom all things were created. He's the head of the body. He's the image of the invisible God. He holds all things together in his hand. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from among the dead. In him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells. Through him all All things were reconciled. In him is all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. In him are are all things created. And Christ in you is the hope of glory. That's in about 12 verses. That's all about Jesus, guys. And so much we want to get away and dial it down. Well, if you talk about Jesus, that's kind of offensive. So let's just take Jesus out of everything. And that's what was happening in Colossae. And that's what's happening in the world today. And we need to stop it. We need to be pointing people to Christ more than ever before. He's communicated the greatness of the Lord. We need Him. We cannot be redeemed apart from Him. We were not created apart from Him. We cannot be restored back to perfect, holy God apart from Him. In Him we have wisdom. In Him we are complete. In Him we have hope. In Him we have access to our Heavenly Father. Apart from Him we have nothing. Apart from him, we're separated. It's all about Jesus. So chapters 1 and 2 are doctrine. Then we get to chapter 3 and 4, and it's about now that we know this, that the preeminence is in Christ, that it's all about Jesus, that he, it's not only that he is preeminent in the world or in the universe, but he needs to be preeminent in my life, in every aspect of my life. Jesus Christ doesn't have this little corner over here. I was talking to a guy at the pastor's conference. He said, too many people have Jesus as a file folder in their computer. He's one of the file folders. I got 500 file folders. Jesus is one of them. He said he needs to be moved from being the file folder to the operating system. Amen? Amen. And that's who Jesus needs to be in every one of our lives. Not a part of our life, but he is our life in every aspect of who we are. So in light of who he is, we're to set our mind on things above and have an eternal perspective. Why do we struggle on earth? Because we're focused on the earth. Why do we struggle with all the things going on in this world? Because we're too focused on the world and we're forgetting about who's really in control and who it is that we serve and who it is that we're going to spend eternity with in heaven. We need to put off the old man and put on the new man, he says in chapter 3. Put off the person you used to be and put on the new man being conformed into the image of our Savior. And then finally last week, in putting on the new man, He said he not only needs to be preeminent in your life as individuals, but in your homes, in your families, and in your marriages. Guys, we looked at these so important parts of of life last week. And it's so hard sometimes when we look at things from the world's perspective. The divorce rate today is as high as it's ever been. But you know what? That happens when we take our eyes off of Jesus. The Lord hates divorce. And too often it's, well, we fell out of love. We did. Guys, get your eyes back on the Lord. He's the one who created marriage. He's the one that put the two of you together. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. Amen? It's so easy today. Well, in the, well everybody else, is, I don't care what anybody, what does the Bible say? Let's quit looking at what the world says and let's look at what the Word of God says. And the Word of God highly esteems marriage. And there's a practical admonishment about marriage, about parenting, and about how we go to work. You know what? We invited the Lord to the wedding. We need to invite Him into our marriages. We ask God to give us children. We need to involve Him in our parenting. We prayed and asked God to give us a job. We need to take Him to work with us every single day. Amen? You don't leave Jesus at home when you go to work. I've had people tell me that. Well, when I get to work, I kind of leave my, my faith at the door. I'll tell you what, I hope that he doesn't come back while your face at the door, amen? The point is, I want him with me all the time. How about you, amen? I don't want to walk away from him and leave him behind. And you know what? It's so important that every aspect of life be wrapped up in Jesus. Remember last week in bringing Jesus home, it said, wives, submit to your husbands. That's a real popular thing. Wives love to hear that. But submission there is you submit as unto the Lord. When you're submitting to your husband, you're submitting to the Lord. But you know what? Submission ought to be something that when you fall in love with the Lord is a natural outpouring of your love for the Lord. 
It's a natural outpouring of your love for him. The next verse then says, husbands, love your wives. The word there is agape. It means to selflessly esteem and love her, minister to her, lay down your life for her. It's that same word that's in John 3.16. It says, for God so loved the world. And the problem in that marriages are falling apart today, Christ is not preeminent. He's not the head of the marriage. He's not the one that we seek. We're, finding, we're trying to find something else in the world, and the world will never have anything better than what God wants to give you. And learn to trust Him in that. We know also it says, children, obey your parents in all things. The word there in the original language for all is all. So in all things. And when you obey your parents, you're obeying the Lord. Now, will your parents make mistakes? Sometimes. But you know what? You obey anyway. And you let God deal with them. Amen? And we'd obey them. Then it says, parents, that we're not to provoke our children to wrath. We're to lovingly, lovingly discipline them. Never in anger. And then, then the, finally, we saw the work environment. Guys, Christians ought to be the best workers in the building. We take Jesus to work with us. We ought to magnify him in the way that we do our job. And if you have employees or someone that comes to your house and does some work, you should pay them well because that's what the Word of God says. I'll always err on the side, even though I don't make a ton of money, I'll always err on the side of paying them more than I think. Why? Because I'd rather have a good testimony and lose a few bucks. How about you? That's what it's all about in eternity. So lastly, as we look at these last few verses... All this preeminence of Christ and these exhortations to bring it into your marriage and bring it into your home. How in the world do you do that? Well, he's going to address that in these last few verses. If you're taking notes, I titled the message, Living for the Lord in a World of Compromise. Living for the Lord in a World of Compromise. There'll be four points. The first one is, by continuing earnestly in prayer. How do you live for the Lord in a world of compromise? Through prayer. Secondly, by boldly proclaiming the truth of God's word. How do you live for the Lord in a world of compromise? By boldly proclaiming the truth of God's word. Number three, how do you live for the Lord in a world of compromise? By witnessing to the lost with a sense of urgency. Guys, do we have a promise of tomorrow? Bill and Michelle had no idea that a car was going to cut across three lanes and hit the side of their car and their car was going to flip eight times. And they end up upside down. Bill looks in the rearview mirror. He's upside down and sees his kids upside down in their car seats. Pulls them out of the car. They x-ray them. They're fine. God, Praise God that we're indestructible until God's through with us. Amen? But the point is none of us have a promise of tomorrow. And none of your unsaved friends have a promise of tomorrow either. Share your faith with them today. Have a sense of urgency. And then lastly, by surrounding yourself with godly friends. We'll say it when we get there, but you become like the people you hang out with. If you hang out with a bunch of partiers, you're a partier. You hang out with a bunch of people who are, 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 are not walking with God, you're not walking with God because you're going to become like those you hang out with. So look at begin in verse 2 of Colossians chapter 4. By continuing earnestly in prayer. Living for the Lord in a world of compromise by continuing earnestly in prayer. Look what it says. Continue earnestly in prayer. Prayer is the lifeblood for a fruitful walk. One of the first things I ask people when I counsel them is, how's your prayer life? And here's the truth. They'll often say it's good, but I can tell you if it's good by how they're doing. I've yet to meet somebody with a fervent, passionate prayer life whose life was a disaster. I've never seen it. I've never seen it. I just don't believe that can be the case. Now, you might be going through some trials, but the Lord is with you, so it's okay. Because you're seeking Him with your whole heart. It's through the empowering work of the Holy Spirit, fueled by a fervent prayer life, that we have that intimate fellowship with the Lord, no matter what's going on around us. It makes it possible for wives to submit to their husbands. It makes it possible for husbands to love their wives. It makes it possible for children to obey their parents in all things. It makes it possible for fathers not to provoke their children, for employees to do their work as unto the Lord, for employers to give those that work for them what is fair. How does that happen? It starts with preeminence of Christ in your own life. Intimate fellowship with Him in your own walk. It's not enough to believe that He's preeminent. He must be preeminent in your life. 
preeminent every single day, not just Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. Without Him, I can do what? Nothing. And the Bible says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Many think prayer is far too simplified an answer when dealing with their problem. Well, I tried praying, didn't work. What does it say? Continue earnestly in prayer. Continue. Keep praying. Amen? Keep praying. Prayer more than just mouthing of empty words, but a humble, broken, and worshipful bonding of hearts, our hearts, to His. And a sincere willingness and desire to be conformed into the image of His Son through the empowering of His Spirit. When you pray, doesn't it bring you to the end of yourself? When you pray, and we're going to see how we're to pray in a moment here, but when we pray, it ought to transform how we look at everything. Remember that prayer doesn't change God's mind, it changes our hearts. Amen? We're not trying to change God's mind. If you're trying to change God's mind, you're doing the wrong thing. Because if God could change His mind, what a mess that would be. He can't change His mind because He knows everything. He can't learn anything because He knows everything because He's God. Amen? So we're praying to get in tune with Him, not to get Him in tune with us. Okay, Lord, let me straighten you out on a few things here. I told you I wanted that job, and you gave it to the other guy. Now you need to strike him down dead so I can have it. You know, often we come and we want to correct the Lord instead of trusting that God knows what He is doing. Here in just a few words, Paul describes the characteristics of a satisfying and powerful, spiritually powerful prayer life. First of all, it's that word continue. Our prayer must be faithful. It says in 1 Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. For this is the will of God. It says in Acts, be steadfast in your prayer. We are not to quit. We are not to give up. God's delays are not God's denials. Amen? Too often we pray and we think God said no and all he said was wait. Keep praying. I know some who've been praying, maybe been praying to be married for 20 years. Keep praying. The person God has for you is going to be worth the wait. I promise. Amen? Keep praying. Some of you have been praying to have children. My wife and I went through that. We lost our first child, and it took us years. And we just kept praying. And they're worth it. They're a blessing. We pray in our time. God answers in His time. Amen? And we don't pray to wear God out, but to change our hearts. Prayer is the secret to the prospering of the Colossian church early in chapter 1, and they need to continue steadfastly in it. So not only does our prayer need to be faithful, but our prayer needs to be watchful or vigilant. Look what it says. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it. The word vigilant means, means watchful. It means to be awake and alert when we pray. Let me say that one more time. We are to be awake and alert when we pray. Am I the only one that's ever fallen asleep praying? Is anybody else or just me? You know, all right, I'm laying in bed, it's a good time to pray. Wake up to the alarm clock, right? There needs to be a time when we're not laying on our pillow. You know, it's okay to pray in bed, you can pray anywhere. You know, it's good to pray in your car because you tend to be awake there while you're driving. But be watchful, be vigilant, and be, you know, really take prayer as something serious. Guys, if you were going to go sit and talk to God, how, how prepared would you be? If God was going to show up at your house and give you five minutes to talk, you'd cancel everything. You'd, get the, you'd be like focused, ready, stuff written down. Amen? That's how we ought to be when we pray. Watchful, vigilant, continuing, steadfast in our prayer. Real prayer demands spiritual energy and alertness. Watch and pray is used often in the Word of God. Jesus said it many times to the apostles. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. The fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Notice it doesn't say the nodding off, half asleep, not really paying attention prayer. It says the fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Doesn't God deserve our complete attention? Let's give it to Him as we pray. But also, do we pray continually and vigilantly, but look at this, in it, with thanksgiving. When we pray, I always start my prayers thanking and praising God. Always. 
You know why? Because he's worthy to be worshipped, to be praised, and to be thanked for what he's done. Amen? And you know what happens when you're thankful and worshipful in your prayer? Doesn't it remind you of the greatness and the character of your God? And the things you're about to pray about become so much less significant in comparison to the greatness of God. When you're praying to Almighty God, Creator of the universe, Alpha and Omega, the one who suffered and died that might have eternal life, the one that holds the stars in His hands, the universe in His hands, the one who created all things before all things, the great and awesome, only true and living God, and then you pray about you're struggling in your English class, it's pretty easy to pray about that. Because God's greater than that, isn't He? And He's greater than any illness or any struggle that you may have. We need to thank God for who He is and all He's done, lest we take it for granted. Guys, we've been blessed, chosen, adopted, accepted, redeemed, forgiven, enlightened, sealed, assured. You're going to heaven. You can't thank Him enough for what He's already done. Amen? And we need to be thanking Him more. That ought to be a part of our prayer life. You know why we get bummed out and depressed? You know why we get anxious and worried? Because we stop and we forget the greatness and the character of God. If you, if you grasp the character of God, there's nothing for you and I to be depressed about. You're his child. Does it get any better than that? Your earthly father may be a mess. Your heavenly father is not. You may be struggling in your marriage. You've got a bridegroom who loves you who's the perfect bridegroom. Amen? We need to remember the greatness and the character of our God. We, need so, we have so much to be thankful for. Look at verse 3. The prayer, this purposeful prayer is also... It's purposeful. That's what I meant. It's got a purpose to it. You know, when you pray, it's good to pray specific things. I have people pray, oh, God bless all the God's children and all the people on the planet. And, the... and that, you know what? That's okay, I guess. How are you going to know if he answers that? You know what? Pray specifically. Can I encourage you to start praying for people by name? Pray for people by name. Pray for coworkers by name. Pray for neighbors by name. Pray for individual things you're struggling with in your life and ask God to deal with them in your own heart. Pray for them specifically. Look at verse 3. Meanwhile, praying also for us. This is the Apostle Paul. Paul says, by the way, as long as you're praying, pray for me. Guys, can I encourage you? The, the number one blessing I get for anybody in this church outside of seeing you guys saved and growing, but for me personally, is when someone comes up and tells me, I pray for you every day. And there are many of you that have told me that. You know what, if you're doing that, keep it up, please. I'll take it. There's nothing greater you can do for me than pray for me. And you know what, I'm praying for you. And we need to be praying for each other, amen? And the Apostle Paul says, pray for us. As long as you're praying, pray for us. We can only truly see God's answer when we pray a specific prayer. And purposeful prayer is not aimed at getting our will done in heaven, but again, God's will done on earth. Not getting God in harmony with our desires, but our hearts in harmony with His. Paul was not shy or ashamed to ask for prayer. You know what? Can I encourage you? We have pastors up here after every service available to pray with you. The Bible says, there are any sick among you, call for the elders. Come for We're here to pray for you. We're not going to run out in the parking lot and tackle you and hold you down and pray for you. We will pray for you throughout the week if you're in the bulletin. We will pray for you when you put your prayer request in. But the pastors are here. And so often we struggle, but yet we never seek prayer. We need to pray more as a church, amen? We need to pray more. It's on your pastor's heart, but more importantly, it's on the Lord's heart. So he says, pray also for us. And then look what he says, and I love this part. So part one of living for God in a world of compromise by continually, earnestly in prayer. And then number two, by boldly proclaiming the truth of God's word. Look at the second half of verse three. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door out of this jail so we can get out of here. Is that what it says? That's what I'd have been praying for. How about you? Paul was in prison writing this. Now, if you're in prison, what do you think your number one prayer request might be? Get me out! I did, I did prison ministry for four and a half years. The number one prayer request for almost every one of those guys was, yeah, I, you know, I got another appeal coming up, man. Pray. And there's okay to pray for, about an appeal. That's fine. 
But I'll tell you what, there's a greater thing to pray for than to escape prison. It's an, for an opportunity for the gospel. This is Paul's heart. Paul was more concerned with seeing people saved than him being set free. He wanted to see people set free from sin and death more than he wanted to be set free from the chains that were binding him. He was more people worrying about people who were bound by sin than him being bound by the world and by men. And it says there that God would open a door for us for the word. Paul didn't pray for the prison doors to be opened, but for an opportunity for the gospel. Why was he in the prison? For preaching the gospel. So what does he pray for? An opportunity to do more of the very same thing that's got him in this mess to begin with. Paul says, you know what? I got these captive audience every day, these, these, these guards by, you know, that come and get chained up to me. I get to preach to them. We know that m- many of the Roman guard was saved and God used him to preach people that would never be reached otherwise. But now he also says, pray for an opportunity for me to preach the word because that's what it's about. Guys, how much of that is your prayer life? We're always praying, God give me, God make me, God help me, God give me the promotion, God give me this, God give me that. When was the last time you prayed, God give me an opportunity to share the love of God with somebody today? Lord, give me a chance to share my faith with the next door neighbor. Lord, give me a chance to share openly with my boss. God will answer that prayer. Paul eternally focused, praying for more opportunities to do the very thing that landed him in prison. And the world today is watering down, attacking, rejecting, and denying the inerrancy of Scripture. Guys, we need to elevate God and elevate His Word. And those two things go hand in hand. You cannot downplay the Word of God without downplaying the God of the Word. Amen? It's God's Word that is under attack today. And we need to boldly proclaim the truth, not only in our words, but in our actions. Look what he says there. Open us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. The mystery was the hidden truth that Jesus died not just for the Jews, but the Gentile alike. And he said, I want a door opened to share with the Romans to share with those who I'm imprisoned with. I pray for an opportunity for the gospel, for which I am also in chains. Paul was imprisoned for the gospel. God has joined the Spirit of God to the Word of God, and we must never separate the Word from prayer. Guys, we cannot... Can I encourage you when you open up the Bible? Pray first. Spend time in prayer first. And then open up the Word of God and let God speak to you. Those two things ought to go together. And we see here, continuing earnestly in prayer and then praying for an opening, an opportunity to share the Word of God. And then he says, verse 4, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. The word make it manifest is make it evident, clearly evident. Paul wanted prayer that he would continue to make the gospel clear and evident, even if it meant more chains. He said, I'm praying, give me an opportunity to make it more clear than it's ever been before. That was his prayer. Now, prayer is one of the things God uses to open up doors, you guys. And we need to pray more. Pray with fervency. Pray without ceasing. You know, there was a man by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. How many of you ever heard of him? They call him the Prince of Preachers. And he had a building that was full. People were standing in the rain. Every word was reprinted word for word in the London Times. Can you imagine that? His Sunday morning message was Monday morning in the Times, word for word, page after page after page, every word of it. Incredible. Back before they had tapes that you could listen to. And people came and wanted to know Where does this power come from? How are all these people getting saved? And he showed, as he was taking them through a tour of the the church building, he took them down into a lower room. And he said, here's where the power comes from. He said, every time I'm teaching to thousands up there, there are hundreds down here praying. And you know what? When When we pray, God moves. Amen? And we're not praying to make Him move or to change Him, but when we pray, we get in line with what He wants to do. Amen? We need to pray more. And you can pray for those in ministry. Pray for those that are studying the Word, that God would prepare them as they meditate upon it. Pray that the Holy Spirit would give those who teach the Word deeper insight to the truth. Pray that those who teach the Word will be strengthened to put into practice what they preach. And then pray in your own life that God will use you by His Spirit to plant, 
water and to harvest His truth to a lost and dying world? How do we live for the Lord in a world of compromise? By continuing earnestly in prayer and then by boldly proclaiming the Word of God. Thirdly, by witnessing to the lost with a sense of urgency. Look at verse 5. It says there, Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Walk in wisdom. The word walk is our conduct of daily life. Your daily life ought to be walked in light of the fact that there are people around you that don't know God. When was the last time you thought about unsaved people in your office? Unsaved neighbors? How much of of your thought life do they occupy? You know, our lives ought to be a testimony even when we don't speak. We ought to live in such a way. Now, we should speak. But we ought to live in such a way that if people just watched us, they would know that we've got Jesus inside of us. You know, it's interesting. In 1946, there was a pastor of Calvary Baptist, and he was also the head of the Moody Bible Institute. And a detective hired, a man hired a detective to follow him around to find out if all the stuff this guy preached was legit. And you know what happened? The guy's life matched his preaching and the man who hired the detective got saved. Because he believed that he wasn't just mouthing a bunch of words, but he was living it out. One of the number one things you hear when people attack Christianity, they talk about the hypocrisy amongst Christians. Oh man, I'm not going a bunch of hypocrites there. And I often tell them I'd rather spend a a few hours on Sunday morning with a few hypocrites and eternity in hell with all of them. But the point is, That we need to live our lives in a way that are set apart unto God. And we need to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. And we need to live it in such a way that it would draw people unto the Lord. Walking in wisdom. Towards those who are outside. These are the people who are yet to be saved. They're outside. They're on the outside looking in. Guys, we've got the answers. Amen? Do we know the meaning of life? One word. Jesus. That's it. You want to know the meaning of life? You want to know the answer? You want to know where hope is? Jesus is the answer to all those questions. We have the meaning of life. We have the hope. We have the peace. And you know what? People are out there looking for it. And we simply need to point them to Jesus. He says, redeeming the time. The the way I wrote it down is seizing every opportunity. Redeeming the time. Our life is but a vapor. We're trading the temporal for the eternal. We're giving up a little bit of the temporal so that we might see more people spending eternity in heaven. Giving away that which we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose. Redeeming the time. The word redeem means to buy up. Buying up our time. How are we spending our time, guys? How much of it are we spending for the Lord? Verse 6. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Speech, seasoned with salt. What does that mean? Salt does something. It makes you thirsty. And you know what? It's also something that purifies. The speech we use with people ought to cause people to thirst for what we have. Ought to make them thirsty. That's not going to happen if we're self-righteous and arrogant. It's not going to happen if we're standing on a box with a blowhorn screaming at people as they walk by that they're going to fry in hell. Not real effective. It's kindness that leads people to repentance, but it's not watering down of truth that leads people to repentance. Amen? Speak the truth, but do it in love. We ought to cause others to thirst as we're kind and loving and gracious. Some are going to respond anger and bitter no matter what, but keep loving them anyway. That's God's will and God's plan. And it says that you may know how to answer each one. God, you know what's great about our God? When we go out and witness to people, even if you're by yourself, you're never alone. You ever open up your mouth to witness to somebody and verses are coming out of your mouth that you forgot you even knew? Has that ever happened to anybody besides me? And God just, it's just, the, you're just kind of hanging on, right? And the Lord's doing the talking. And you know what? He's telling us that let it be, Grace seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Exhibiting the grace of God. Not the self-righteous bitterness and anger of legalism, but the grace of God. May we always speak with kindness. So living for the Lord in a world of compromise, by continuing earnestly in prayer, 
by boldly proclaiming the truth of God's word, by witnessing to the lost with a sense of urgency. And then finally, we're going to go through these last verses here rather quickly. But by surrounding yourself with godly friends and influences, and I think this is one of the biggest flaws in the church today. There are so many people trying to live in the world and walk with God. We're to be in the world, but not of it, you guys. Your best friends ought to love Jesus more than you do. You should look for people that are more on fire for God than you are. Because what happens when you start hanging out with a bunch of dead coals, you're going to become a dead coal. But you take that coal and you put it in the fire, what's going to happen? You're going to get lit up too, amen? And you become like those you hang out with. And so I love this list of Paul's friends. None of these guys surprise me that they're Paul's friends. Because look at the kind of guys they are. Look at verse 7. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. Who is he hanging out with? Tychicus. This guy was in prison with Paul for part of the time. He had been with Paul and left at one point and then returned to him. He was willing to stay with Paul no matter how difficult the situation became. He was a beloved brother. How encouraging it is to have a Christian at your side when everything else seems to be against you. Amen? And you know who's going to stand with you in the right way? A beloved brother. Not only was he a beloved brother, but he was a faithful minister. His love was revealed in his actions. He didn't just stand by Paul, but he ministered to Paul, and he also ministered for Paul to help him reaching out to others. These are the kind of people you want to hang out with, people that are going to encourage you to go deeper in your walk and be bolder in your faith. You don't want a friend who's going to be trying to get you to go hang out at the bar. Amen? Hey, you know, dude, it's been a long day, man. Let's go kick. Hey, whoa, time out. Let's honor and glorify God. Now, my desire, it's not going to happen tomorrow, but at some point, whether it's here or when we get a building, we're going to have church every night of the week. And the reason for that is not that you come every night, but I want you to know that if you're sitting at dinner at home and you think, you know, I want to go to a Bible study, you can come down here and there's going to be a Bible study. Because the, you know what was better than Laverne and Shirley reruns? The book of Judges, amen? The Word of God will transform your life. And I want you to have a place where you can go and fellowship anytime. My heart is at some point we're going to have communion here every morning. My heart is we're going to have times of worship three or four nights a week. That's going to happen as God continues to raise up people to do it. I have a passion to do it, but it won't happen until God, until God will in His due time. But that's the way it ought to be, amen? And people go, man, well, there's just too much going on at church, man. I, I'd rather... What do you got to do instead? And it's not a have to, it's a get to, amen? I was a little kid growing up at Calvary Costa Mesa. I remember at one point, we went there like 15 days in a row. And I loved it. Christian concert one night, Bible study the next night, this thing happened with the youth the next night. It was great. And we think, well, that's going to burn me out. Well, yeah, well, go watch TV and see who gets burned out, amen? <laughs> but here's a fellow brother, someone who's right there with you, encouraging you in your faith. These are the kinds of friends that Paul had. Not only a, fellow bro- a beloved brother and a fellow minister, but a fellow servant. The Bible says you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. Tychicus took the right way, not the easy way, and we need more Tychicuses in the church today. Amen? Not only was Tychicus with him, but it says, I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, then they will make known to you all the things that are happening here. If you guys remember the book of Philemon, Onesimus was a what? A slave who ran away from his master and ran into a guy by the name of Paul. That would be a divine appointment. Paul leads him to the Lord, and then what does he do? He tells him to go back and serve his master. Well, I just got saved and I'm free and I can be used more for God if I'm out here. You want me to go back and be a slave? Go back and be a slave. You ran away, you shouldn't have, go back. We know eventually he was freed. But the point is that this man Onesimus, who he knew for a short time, had become a beloved brother because you know what? When we got Jesus in common, we got everything in common. I've met people in line at Disneyland that I have a better relationship with than people I've known for 20 years because I got Jesus in common with them. 
I'll see a Jesus t-shirt. Hey, you know the Lord. God bless you, bro. You man, we're hugging by the time we get to the front of the line. You know what? We're going to spend eternity together when I start loving each other now. Amen? And there's such an awesome... We got the same dad. We got the same dad. We're brothers in Christ. Verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Aristarchus was one of Paul's fellow traveling companions. He had risked his life in the Ephesian riot. He was with Paul in the storm and the shipwreck. This guy stayed with him no matter what the circumstances. This is a brother. This is the kind of guy you want to walk with. This is how I feel about a lot of you in this room. His fellow prisoner, no doubt largely due to being linked to Paul. He's in prison because he's hanging out with Paul. A lot of guys go, dude, you, you get in too much trouble. I'm not hanging out with you anymore. You're always like preaching the gospel and getting rocks thrown at you and causing riots and, you know what, shit. You go get in a boat and it sinks and, you know what, man, I, I'm just done hanging out with you. But this guy said, you know what, where you are, God's moving. I want to be there. And I'm hanging out with you. Then it says, I love this, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. He's talking about Mark. If you'll remember in Acts 13, Mark and Paul weren't doing so well. You guys remember the story? They went on the first missionary journey. What did Mark do? He quit. He quit and he went home. And Paul wasn't so much for that. He didn't like that too much. So the second missionary journey comes along and Barnabas brings Mark and he goes, I'm not taking that sniveling little punk. He's staying home. That's the paraphrase version of the text. He said, I'm not taking that guy. He quit last time. He's a sniveler and a whiner. Leave him home. No whiners, no quitters, no babies. He can stay here. And we know it says that Paul and Barnabas got into a brawl over this, not physically, but verbally. And Barnabas left and took John Mark. And and Paul took Silas and went in another direction. And here we are, and Mark is listed in his bros. I like that. Restoration. Our God is a God of restoration. Amen? says, the cousin of Barnabas about whom you received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, that's not the, the Jesus, and Jesus who's called justice, there are only a few fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. This is another Jewish man who had been walking and serving with the Lord, and his name was Justice. Then lastly, I want you to look at this man. Significant, we're done. We're just about done. Epaphras who is one of you. Epaphras was the founding pastor of the church in Colossae. He was the guy that had founded the church. He had been faithful to, to pray. He'd been a faithful man. Look what it says here. Who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ. Bondservant means a slave by choice. May we all be slaves of Christ by choice. He greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayer. Laboring fervently for you. This is watchful and attentive prayer. Amen? He's agonizing in prayer, not praying for them half-heartedly, but completely. It says, laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. What does he pray for them? That they might stand perfect and complete before God. He didn't pray they'd be famous. He didn't pray they'd be rich. He didn't pray they'd be healthy. He prayed they'd be godly. And there's no greater prayer we can pray than that, Amen. It's okay to pray for people's health. We should do that. The Word of God tells us to. But the greatest prayer we can pray is that someone would walk with the Lord. Then it says in verse 13, For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Heropolis. You know what? A pastor's calling is is revealed in his passion for the people. He had a passion and a zeal for these people. That's one of the first things I look for when someone has a a heart to be in ministry, is I want to see a passion first for God and then those they're called to minister to. That's a sign of someone who's truly called. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Now the interesting part about this is that Luke was a doctor, but didn't Paul like heal like everybody? Did Did he heal people? What's the answer? Yes, but he had a doctor with him. You know why? Because sometimes God heals miraculously and some guy, sometimes God uses doctors. Amen? And we need to make sure we don't get out of control on either side of that. Go to the doctor. That's not lack of faith. And it can be foolishness not to go to the doctor. Amen? But we should pray as we go to the doctor or before we go. Amen? 
And then lastly, it says, Demas, greet you. This is really a sad story, and I'll close with this, and we'll just read the last few verses. But Demas is a warning for us, because each time Paul talks about Demas, there's less and less to say about this guy. First time he talks about him, he talks about him as a fellow servant. This time, he just mentions his name, and later, it's going to say in 2 Timothy, that Demas has forsaken, because, forsaken God out of his love for the world. Demas is a warning. That we can start loving the world and we'll start forsaking God. You can only have one person on the throne of your life. God or you. Choose one. Amen? And Demas chose the world. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphos, the church that is in his house. Again, what kind of guys does he hang out with? Guy, a guy that has a Bible study in his house. That's a friend of Paul. Verse 16. Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, that you likewise read the epistle in Laodicea. This shows again that the word of God was moved around from city to city when it was written. It wasn't just read in one city and kept there, but they passed it around. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received from the Lord that you may fulfill it. This is a great word for all of us. Quit looking at what other people are called to do and you be faithful to what God's calling you to do. Amen? That's what Archbishop is saying. You be faithful to what God has called you to do. This salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains, grace be with you. Amen. By my own hand means that he probably dictated the rest of the letter and here at the very end, probably because of all the, the beatings he had suffered and the difficulties he had suffered, it was hard for him to write, but he signed his own name at the end of the letter, writing by my own hand. So, living for the Lord in a world of compromise. How do we do that? By continuing earnestly in prayer. By boldly proclaiming the truth of God's Word. By witnessing to the lost with a sense of urgency. And by surrounding ourselves with godly friends and influences. In the light of God's preeminence and who we are in Him, we ought to be different than the world. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You and praise You for Your love and Your grace. We thank You for the power of Your Word. Help us, Lord, to not just know that You're preeminent. But Lord, may You be preeminent and first in our lives as individuals. May we seek first the kingdom of God. May we delight ourselves in the Lord. That's when You give us the desires of our heart because our heart is knit to Yours. Lord, we pray for Santa Cruz. Lord, we want to see revival here. May it start with our neighbors and our family and our friends. Lord, may we be bold in our faith, but always do it in love. Lord, may there be an urgency in our hearts. And Lord, may we always, again, reflect you even when we don't speak. Just by the way we live, may we be a reflection of our Master. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, let's stand and close with a worship song.